from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. It's not easy being the keeper of your family's history, but it surely is an honor. That was me writing in journals since I could write. My grandfather, Teemer Inge, spent most of his life in Pritchard, Alabama. He was born in 1888. I graduated from college in 1988, 100 years later. This hour on Due South, we hear from two women who have collected their family's histories and woven them into beautiful stories, one in a new cookbook, the other in a new album titled Love Always. It's about universal love, more agape love. It's about human kindness, human love, and it's I believe in the power of love is the chorus. I believe in the power of love. Love always, no matter what. Lois DeLoach is a Durham-based songwriter and jazz vocalist who brings her love of family from Northampton County, along with her 40-plus first cousins, into her artistry. But first, do you feel the presence of your elders or ancestors when you cook, cooking those recipes that have been handed down through your family? That's a central question Crystal Wilkinson explores in her new book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. Crystal, welcome to Do South. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. You're from Indian Creek, Kentucky. I wonder if you could paint a picture of your hometown for our listeners. Well, I wouldn't call it a town exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, it was actually uh, back in the day a little black enclave that you had to turn off the paved highway. I was going to say like a hamlet or yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, like a black hamlet, and you had to turn off the the main highway or the main road onto a gravel road that sort of wound around, and you crossed Green River, and then you actually, well, when I was a little girl, you actually would drive through Indian Creek, but eventually we had a bridge, and you would drive over Indian Creek to go up to the house. My grandfather was a um, farmer. Uh, mainly a tobacco farmer, did a lot of, he did some dairy farming there, um, corn, but tobacco was the cash crop. And my grandmother was a domestic worker. And I think my childhood there was kind of idyllic. I, I played in the creeks. I sort of roamed around through the woods with no danger in sight, except for you know, the natural dangers of snakes and <laughs> bugs and that sort of thing. So it was, a, I think it was a perfect place to grow the imagination. Well, tell me about how many people, first of all, are we talking about? How large was your family that you recall? My family, that insular family was just the three of us, me and my my grandparents. But my grandmother had seven children. She had uh, at her passing, about 25 or 26 grandchildren. Um, and there were also like a few other families, but we were all related. Like there were a few 
black people that I had met that weren't relatives until I went to college. (laughs) That's what I was wondering, if you made up all of Indian Creek. Yeah. So your family has been in Indian Creek for five generations. Is there power in being so closely tied to one place, you know, as a family and as an individual? I think so. I mean, at least as an artist, right? I mean, I think as a writer, um, I sort of feel tethered to that place. And people in my family who aren't writers also feel um, really tied to that identity as rural Black people. Uh, we, we, We talk about that all the time, about what that means to us. And we have lots of fond memories about that particular lifestyle. And I think it's duplicated all across the country. So while it feels unique, perhaps in Kentucky, uh, I think it's duplicated throughout Appalachia and throughout the South. Well, I, I would refer to you as more than just a writer or even an artist. You know, you're, you're, you're a poet, you're a storyteller. And I know how important that is in especially African-American families in the South. You know, I think our families, our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents always dreamt of someone being able to tell the family story. And it seems like you're it almost. Yeah. I mean, I felt that. I've always felt that. I didn't know what to call it when I was younger. I was a very um, shy child, uh, very reserved. But, you know, I was the one that was up under the table in grown folks' business all the time. And they would notice that I was there, you know, halfway through all the juicy parts and say, girl, girl, get on out of here and <laughs> and go do something else. But I think I was the, you know, the African term would be the grill. Like I was the 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 story keeper, the one who kept all of the news. Um, and and I did that as a as a young child. You know, almost everything my grandmother said, I've, I had an inclination to write it down. Um, when she showed me various things in the woods, I felt like I needed to draw the leaves that were safe and, you know, draw the ones, you know, she would say, stay away from this kind of leaf. And I would sort of draw it in there and put a name beside it. So that's sort of like documenting things. I think kids who are quiet, um, because you don't use certain senses, other ones are heightened. Right. And so I, I, I was very much the observer and noticed everything and then tried to write down everything that I noticed. Very important. Because before we get into your new book, I just want to start out by acknowledging that you did serve as the Poet Laureate of Kentucky from 2021 to 2023, and you were the first Black woman ever to hold that position. You know, what did that yes. experience, what did that teach you? Um, well, I mean, I think I saw it as a place of of honor. You know, the sad part was that I was the first, um, and here we are in the 2000s. Um, but I'm, I'm very proud of that. You know, earlier you mentioned something about people not being able, I feel like I am my grandmother's greatest dream, her greatest hope. She wanted to be uh, a school teacher and she wasn't able to become a school teacher. She ended up being married at 14. So, um, I felt like when I was inducted by the governor, to be the state poet laureate that my ancestors were standing there with me and that I was making them proud, particularly my grandmother, because she 
she wrote and she had aspirations of being a writer and she wasn't able to see those things into fruition. Uh, and I have been. And, and I also think it was important for Black girls to see me in that role, to know that they too uh, could be a poet laureate or whatever they wanted to be. So did it feel like an affirmation of your family's commitment to remaining in the state of Kentucky for so many generations? We know so many families, you know, left this part of the country and moved north. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an, an affirmation of that. It was also an affirmation to me personally as a writer. Um, there had been many times over the years when I, you know, as a, you know, first as a child and then as a, a young adult, even sort of being shy and standing at in line, a long line sometimes for Kentucky writers like Wendell Berry and sort of peeping over at them signing books and wanting um, something like that for myself um, and for future generations. So it was an affirmation of that, too. You know, your book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghost, it opens with an acknowledgement of how often Black residents of Appalachia are erased from history. How do you account for that erasure? Well, I think it's a stereotype on top of a stereotype. Mm -hmm. uh, people think of of even white Appalachians a particular way, um, and they definitely think of Appalachia as uh, as all white. You know, even in in some of the earlier dictionaries, the definition of an Appalachian was white people indigenous to the Appalachian region. If you look back far enough, and so there was this. We knew we were there. Um, um, so there was uh, almost by design a sort of erasure uh, of people. And, you know, some people see, still see the word Appalachia as um, a word that's synonymous with white people. And people often ask me, like, you know, why don't you just call yourself country? Like, why are you <laughs> claiming that that term um, Appalachian? And, and, you know, I'm, I say that it's as much mine or it's as much ours as it is anyone else's. Like when your family has been there for more than 200 years and the place is called Appalachia, it's, it's, it's yours. as much yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely as much ours as it is anyone else's. So absolutely, we claim it. It's like reclaiming the word country. Like I can remember when I was younger, the <laughs> word country was like, if somebody called you country, that was like fighting words. Right. Right. Uh, so I think through my writing, I've been able to sort of reclaim what it means to be country, to be like directly connected through the land um, and through a particular way of living. And that's not bad. I call it authentic. That's what I call it. We are experts uh, at that, you know, going all the way back to the continent. So um, I think it is a pure way to be authentic. Well, I've been chatting with Crystal Wilkinson, author of the new book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks, and the former Poet Laureate of Kentucky. We'll be right back. This is Due South. Welcome back to Do South. 
I'm Leonita Inge. Our guest is Crystal Wilkinson, author of the new book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. Well, this book is definitely an ode to your matriarchs, including an ancestor named Aggie of Color. Please tell me about Aggie. Yes, Aggie of Color was born in 1795 in Virginia and was brought to Kentucky as an enslaved um, child, as an enslaved girl. And when I came upon her, um, I thought that paying honor and homage to her was a way to also pay honor and respect to all those thousands of women, uh, of Black women, whose names we'll never know. I think that in my research, I was lucky to be able to go back that far. And one of the reasons why I was able to go back that far with her is because she was tied in documents to, she was my fourth great grandmother. And my fourth great grandfather was a white man named Tarleton Wilkinson. So he actually deeded her some household items um, like table and pots and pans and a feather bedstead. And um, so when he deeded her, and he later deeded her some land, and he they are listed as being married on census records. But we know that they probably weren't legally married. You know, he owned her. Because she was so tightly connected to him, I know her name. Like mm. she was called Aggie of Color mm-hmm. um, in the deed. And then later on, she's referred to as Aggie Wilkinson. And what was eye-opening for me is that I, her daughter appears on the cover of the book. And her name was Patsy Rife. And there's always been a Patsy Rife Ridge uh, in the little hamlet uh, where I grew up, in the county that I grew up in. Um, And my grandmother would say, you know, yeah, there's Patsy Rife Ridge up, you know, up the road here. Uh, She's somewhere kin to us. And so Patsy Rife was probably the most famous person in my county, the most famous Black woman. And so if you look at history books um, of that county in Kentucky, It'll have, you know, pages and pages about the founders of the county and all the people. And usually in all of them, there's a paragraph that says something about Patsy Rife. And it'll say, you know, she was a, you know, they use the word colored, a colored businesswoman um, who, you know, was also an an innkeeper uh, and owned a hunting lodge. And it will say she was the daughter of a slave woman and a white businessman. And that's sort of history, local history that I grew up with, um, not really knowing who Aggie was at all. Mm. And when I found out that Aggie had a name, was not a slave woman, but had a name, her name was Aggie, and that that was her mother, it just kind of blew the top off my head. And you know, I also read in the New York Times review of your book that there's a specific garment you wear when you want to summon the kitchen ghosts, um, so to speak. You know, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, it's a, it is a dress that my grandmother 
uh, wore. I, I don't actually wear it, but I will bring it into my kitchen mm. and hang it up. And that and that started, you know, right after my grandmother died. That's one of the things that I sort of inherited when my aunts and uncles and my mother said, you know, well, do you want anything? I chose this dress and it's been hanging up in my closet. So that first holiday, um, which was the harvest meal, was Thanksgiving after Granny passed. Um, it was the first time that I had attempted to cook such a large meal myself. And so I was in grief. I was crying. And that's was, the test, Crystal. The yeah, test. yeah. Yes. It's the big, the big test. Can <laughs> yes. you do this? Like, you've watched me do it. You've helped me do it. But can you do it by yourself? And um, I was crying. I didn't didn't know if I could, if I could, you know, kind of go on without her, or if I even, you know, could be a woman worth her salt and even do this. Um, so I hung her dress up on the back door, and it just it just came over me that she was there, and it was kind of like, okay, come on, come on, girl, get this together. You know, you can do this. You know how to do this. I showed you how to do this. And so it felt as if she was in the room. And um, I decided to devote this entire book to that, to that concept, to that idea, to that, that feeling that those who came before us, that we have access to them. I really would like you to turn to page 119 of your book to read just that first opening graph of Blackberries, Blackberries. Blackberries, blackberries. When my mother was alive, we were twins in our love for blackberries. I would pick her up for a doctor's appointment or she would be visiting at my house and she'd say, I sure would love me some blackberries. I'd get us some, but they weren't like the ones down home. For the longest time, I thought this longing was somehow in our blood. But now I realize that the reason we craved blackberries had more to do with homesickness than it did our love for the fruit. That's not to say that blackberries aren't delectable or that me or my mother were false in our desires. We absolutely loved the taste of blackberries, but it wasn't the frozen blackberries or the city grocery, the blackberries in the produce section imported from Mexico or even the cultivated blackberries grown locally that we craved. We longed for the wild blackberries that were plentiful on Indian Creek, where me and my cousins, mama and her siblings, granny and granddaddy, and all those who came before would don boots, long sleeves, pants, rags soaked in coal oil in the sweltering heat of summer to stave off the stinging bite of chickers while we picked wild blackberries that grew abundantly on our land. Do you have a favorite recipe in this book? Is there such a thing? Well, I think every time someone asks me this question, I try to come up with a new answer, <laughs> but it's always the same answer. Um, the chicken and dumplings is my favorite recipe and pre prepared in this particular way. You know, there are lots of regional food fights across the country. And I, I kind of love to start them on social media. So I'm always, you know, I'll say uh, grits, uh, sugar or savory, and everybody just goes nuts, right? They go crazy. <laughs> yes. And I think it's the same with chicken and dumplings. You know, do you like the flat dumplings that are sort of like noodles? 
or do you like the fluffy dumplings that are like biscuits? And where I'm from in our family, we like the fluffy ones. Well, before we leave each other, I wanted to ask you this question that maybe young folks may say all the oh, we're losing recipes. You know, have you ever heard that? You know, do you agree with the sentiment? Or even do you like worry about it that we're not as a people, as a race, as a culture of the South, you know, we're not preserving the traditional ways that our our um, family members, ancestors cooked? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's wonderful historians, food historians like Michael Twitty, who document the ways of the old. But I think in with family recipes, um, you know, it's part romanticism and it's just part the lack of ingredients. Uh, the ingredients aren't the same. The quality of the ingredients aren't the same. Um, so I think it's up to us, each generation, to innovate a little bit. I cook to pay homage to my grandmother, but I'm not replicating her recipes exactly. I can't. Like, nobody, I don't think that yeah. anybody can cook as the same as our mamas and our aunties and our big mamas. Like, we just can't. Well, thank you so much, Crystal Wilkinson, for being here today. A poet, a professor at the University of Kentucky, and author of the new book, Praise Song for the Kitchen Goes, Stories and Recipes from Five Generations of Black Country Cooks. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you for having me. Next up, we'll hear from another storyteller from the rural South who interprets family history and Black history through jazz. This is Due South. The birthplace of jazz is the American South, and North Carolina has long attracted some of the best voices and musicians in jazz. I'm here today with one of them, Lois Deloach. She's a songwriter and jazz vocalist whose new album, Love Always, explores themes of family, history, and resilience. Lois, welcome to Do South. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I think I first heard you sing when I moved to the state 20 years ago. And in a way, I've been like following you. I won't say stalking you, but <laughs> but just sort of showing up where I hear you may be singing. And um, I've loved it always. So I want to start really by asking you a bit about your upbringing. Uh, I know you grew up in rural Northampton County, and you were part of a large family. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, This year, I'm celebrating 30 years as a professional musician, although I have been in music all of my life. I'm rooted in in music, as you said. I'm from Northampton County, a little town called Margaretsville. It's right there on the Northampton County, North Carolina, Southampton County, Virginia line. And um, so much of the culture of that community is around music and nature and family and just the earth. You know, how many children were there in your family? Oh, I'm the seventh of 10 children. 
There were five boys, five girls. And in addition to the 10 of us, my parents, like many folks in that community, helped to raise other folks' children. So on any given Sunday, we would have, you know, 25, 30 cousins at the house and people sleeping overnight (laughs) on pallets and just really fun things. So that makes me bring up your relationship with music um, as a child. I mean, did you come from a singing family? Yes. Um, I would say that we were immersed in music from all different directions. A lot of our community life revolved around the church, so church music was really important. Um, In school, we had music, you know, and I was telling somebody the other day, Leonida, we were in a rural, rich area. Um, We did not have music instruction Music for us was basically singing and learning songs. So from the time I was preschool age, we were always singing songs and learning songs, whether they were holiday songs or um, or festive songs. So music and singing has been a big part of my existence. And yes, my family did have a band. I was too young to join, but my older brothers and sisters had a band called The Destructions. They were a soul, rock, pop group, and they got gigs. I grew up in an era where there were lots of bands. Many of my friends in my teenage years had bands, dance bands, and we'd go out to hear them dance at schools and little community centers and things like that. So, yes, music from all directions. Well, music was everything. It was communication, When things were good, you needed music. And when things were bad, you needed music. And it just seems like it always made everything better. It did. And I am just old enough um, to remember we did work in the fields. That's one of the lines from one of the songs um, that's on the CD, 41st Cousins. Um, I actually remembered chopping and picking cotton. Um, Not very long, but we did. And I remembered the elders who sang as they worked. So it was literally work songs. You know, I heard some of those words, and I was going to ask you, I am going to talk more about, I was like, she was working in the fields. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, when you think of your childhood and, say, your childhood song, is there a song that comes to mind? I have to tell you the song. When When I was thinking about that, I was like, what song comes to mind to me? Okay, so this is my test song. So I used to love Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. So oh, I yeah. thought about it as a oh, child. Yeah. I, I actually told um, my producer, I said, I'm going to sing to yeah. to Lois. I don't know. I'm not going to sing. If you sing oh, it, then can, I'll sing it. We can sing it together. Okay. Ezekiel said he saw him oh, as a wheel in the middle of a wheel. John talked about him in the book of the seven seals. <laughs> All I know is that Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. Yes. Ezekiel saw the wheel. Now that's I know the refrain. <laughs> okay, join us and join me. It, it may be two different songs. That's the I thing know, too. But, but you know, but everybody sang about Ezekiel, didn't they? Maybe right. when they were young. I don't know, yeah. but I love that song. You know, when you mentioned um, one of the songs that I recall from my childhood, of course, we all learned. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. The other one that was a favorite for me was. There's a bright side somewhere. There's a bright side somewhere. Don't you rest until you find it. 
There's a bright side somewhere. Oh, that should be on the new album. <laughs> so tell me what made you, or really what inspired this particular project? You know, I love the name, you know, Love Always. This project really was a culmination, or actually I'll say a confluence of a number of things. My father passed away in December 2022 at 98 years old. As we say, Daddy finished life. He did. And with his passing, um, it really was an end of an era in my family. And a lot of this music sort of just captures music of home and of hope and of upbringing, and I dedicate this recording to my parents and to um, to the rural culture that has made me who I am. Love always, no matter what, no matter when or where, love is the answer. It's why we were born. We were born of love. The tune Love Always is just uh, one of the songs that I wrote. Uh, it started during the pandemic. Many of the tunes were written during the pandemic. Uh, and this one is just a commentary on my belief that regardless of how crazy and mad the world might be, we have to hold fast to love and to hope and to peace. You know, there's just so many standouts on the on the standout tracks on this album. And I went straight to 40 First Cousins. <laughs> it's so nostalgic. It made me think of childhood with my own family and how I remember when an uncle passed some years back, we decided we need to start counting. Because I think it's, you know, we're like over 50, like first cousins. And um, I think you counted, I don't know, 40? I mean, 40, 40 first cousins? 40 plus. Uh -huh. um, I I was one of 10. Well, we, my family, we were one of 10. My mom, Aunt May, had 13. Another aunt and uncle had 11. Uh, but my both parents were also had lots of siblings. So we had lots of uh, first cousins, and we grew up together. Many of us did grow up together, though many of the older cousins were part of that great migration, and they left the South um, very, you know, as teenagers or right after high school and went to Philadelphia or Brooklyn or D.C. to make their lives. And 41st Cousins was actually written the tune for my cousin Barbara, who was a very early casualty of COVID. Um, unfortunately, that scenario pre-vaccine, when her daughter dropped her off and thought she'd see her again and never did. And her passing in particular just inspired me to document um, the memories of her and just memories of other cousins who have passed on. We worked in the fields, walked long country roads. We pumped the water from the well, gathered crops from the seeds. We well, it's a beautiful song. I I really enjoyed that, and that definitely brings back memories. Lois DeLoach is a songwriter and jazz vocalist. Her latest album is Love Always. We'll rejoin our conversation with Lois DeLoach right after this. You're listening to Do South. A family prayed on bended knees We laughed and played them barefoot hot 
summer days so I Leonita Inge, welcome back to Do South. I'm here in the studio with Lois Deloach, singer, songwriter, and we're talking about her latest project, Love Always. And you know what? I think I'm not going to try to sing with her anymore. I think I'm just going to leave that up to the professional because I'm really enjoying myself and hearing her. But of course, of course, we have to start this conversation out. Really, the title track. Love Always. It's February, and we're still in a season of love. Yeah, this is a song about love that isn't just airy and romantic. It's a little deeper than that. It has some weight to it. Yeah, it's about universal love, more agape love. It's about human kindness, human love. And it's, I believe in the power of love is the chorus. I believe in the power of love. Love always, no matter what. You know, so I think particularly during these times when there are lots of things pulling our attention away from peace and from universal love, it's the time to come back to what's most important. Who are some of your musical inspirations, I guess, besides family members? I mean, who do you go and purchase and like to listen to? There's such a huge array when I think about um, over the course of my life, whether it's the soundtrack of my life, it's, of course, Gladys Knight and Aretha Franklin and Mahalia Jackson and um, Luther Vandross, um, it's Sarah Vaughn, it's Nina Simone, it's Abby Lincoln. Uh, there are any number. It just depends on the mood that I'm in. It depends on the day. <laughs> That's right. Depends on the day. That's such a, a breadth and wealth of of music to to listen to. And right here, of course, in this area, I love my my sisters in song, um, Nina Freelon and um, Lenora Helm Hammond and Kate McGarry. So, any given day, I may have in my CD changer, you know, recordings from. 25, 30, 40 years ago to things that were just recorded in the last few months. You write poetry. I don't know if you still write poetry. I know you started writing as a child, Mm -hmm. and some spoken word also shows up in this album. I enjoyed listening to you. It was was almost, okay, Souls Remember. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yes. Whose poetry really, you know, I guess... I guess spoke to you as a child, but I just remember this big opening. I, I, I like the way it lingered a while. It was a very big opening, and you know, you talk about ancestors and your beloved and dignity and pride. And um, tell me about your love of poetry in that song. Well, I do love poetry, and I view my art on a continuum. Um, many of the songs that I'm developing now were things that were nuggets from poems that I wrote when I was a teenager or early 20s or 30s. Uh, and they're just nuggets that I'm now converting or, or developing into songs. I sort of view my work as documentary art in a way. And most of these are experiences from my life and uh, or from experiences that I've, I've gathered uh, over the years. So I continue to write in sort of snippets. I will it's say like a collage. <laughs> it is a collage. It is a collage, Leonita. And f- for me, um, I often start my songwriting with the music. 
Occasionally, it starts with the lyric. Souls Remember, though, I must give some credit to the producer, uh, Ernest Turner, helped me produce this recording. It's always nice. We're so fortunate in the Triangle to have all these talented people right here. And Ernest and I have worked together for years, and he agreed to co-produce or really produce this for me. And it was his idea to do it more as a spoken word rather than to sing through it. And it starts with, Oh, my beloved, live in this moment and honor your ancestors who willed you into being. My beloved, live in this moment and honor your ancestors who dreamed you into being. They willed you into this world. Celebrate their joys and triumphs. Remember their sacrifices and suffering to get you here now. Carry their stories with dignity and pride. Exist because they survived. You exist because they survived. They survived. Souls Remembered in particular, I wrote with my father in mind and with the ancestors in mind, knowing that we are because they were and they did survive. So that's something that particularly the older I get, I'm so appreciative of. And, you know, really... It's not just surviving our past and where we came from, but we were talking about the pandemic, just mm-hmm. surviving the past few years. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's the surviving, it's the thriving, it's the creating, it's the being throughout all of this. And for me, music, you know, it's it's my happy place. It's it what it roots me. So this album also included another favorite song of mine. And I wonder, I was like, has she sang this on any of her other other albums? But listening to the Black National Anthem, <laughs> lift every voice and sing. It's time. I wish everybody would re-record their own version or just record their own version of that song. Um, I'd like to hear more about why you made sure this was on this album. Because I could not give, pay homage or tribute to my ancestors without including Lift Every Voice and Sing. Because what um, James Weldon Johnson and his brother did a hundred years ago, I cannot improve on what they said, those words that they said. It just captures so vividly and so brilliantly um, our past, our present, our future. It's also a song that I get requested to sing a lot. People will request that I sing that song a lot. It's very meaningful to me. We have come over a way that with tears have been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered out from the gloomy now stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. You know, we're still in Black History Month, and I think that song was needed. And when I think about your work and music, it's also like a way to continue archiving Black musical history in the South, you know? Yes. 
it's the history and it's just black life and black culture. I'm so deeply grateful for our culture. It is who I am. Uh, and to be able to express it through music in this way and to document it in this way um, is just how I feel like I can potentially make some contribution. So I have to ask you, when you think of your other bodies of work, is this your most personal? Probably. I have included personal um, songs on nearly every project that I've done. But I think this as a collection um, has more depth and breadth than I've included before. So um, I really appreciate that question. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I do believe that this is probably at a uh, deeper level than I've been able to accomplish previously. Uh, as you said before, you noted Souls Remembered and Love Always. The other tune up there that's very personal for me is where we find ourselves. Um, meditation has actually been life-changing and transformative for me. And it's a song about meditation. Uh, it's also a play on words where we find ourselves. You know, often when you are um, in a situation where you're challenged, that's when we need to be quiet and to step away. Um, so, yes. This is a, a, a collection of songs that are very personal, but I also hope that they're universal. You debuted tracks from Love Always at the recently opened Missy Lane's. Yes, <laughs> that was so much fun. I'm My, so proud of this. Uh, you know, as a longtime part of the local jazz scene, what does a venue like that mean to you and probably other jazz performers? How did it feel that night? It felt fabulous. Uh, and I was so honored to be the one to, as Cicely says, to christen that stage. Um, I also was very proud of that because many of us who've been around for a while, and I've said this to a number of people, Baba Chuck Davis, we miss him every day. But when there was anything that was opening, he would come and he would, you with know, drums, he would he come would with the christen it and christen like it and regale it into um you know, and to make it a, it, it was a sacred moment. He would bless the he place. He would bless the place. And I think that now that I am an elder, I embrace the role of being elder, griot, storyteller. Um, so it was particularly um, important to me, but and also it was a proud moment for me to be there, to honor this space that's being opened by a Black woman at a time when Durham is growing and shifting and changing, and there's so much going on. Also, the fact that it's a space that's designed for music. People are coming there. They're, you know, it's a full-fledged business right. in other ways, but the core of it is music. Well, can you speak more to jazz's specific legacy in Durham and in North Carolina, because just like you mentioned, there's so many, and I know Ernest Turner. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel that in a way, I've, I'm older than he is, but he, but he's grown up here too, and his music has developed so beautifully, and so many others. But you know, what makes this area such a special place for jazz? I think it's the spirit of collaboration and partnership and how people embrace the arts. I think about 30 years ago when I decided I wanted to move into music as a profession, uh, how people were so warm and kind and embracing to me. Um, so, yes, I, I think that's part of it. The other part is this rich legacy, as you said before, across the state 
um, whether it's Nina Simone, who's from here, or Max Roach, or Thelonious Monk, or Roberta Flack. We just have, as uh, one of my friends from Massachusetts said to me, there's something in the water there. <laughs> Definitely. Something in the water. So tell me a, a little bit more about, say, your training as a jazz vocalist. And I know you grew up singing with your family and your siblings and maybe even in church, of course. I can tell. I can I can tell oh, that. Yeah, yeah. But but um tell me about your path to actually singing jazz and being a performer. Well I've been singing, as I said, all my life, um, with the choirs and as an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill, I was in the BSM, the Black Student Movement Gospel Choir. And was fortunate to be a lead singer with them for a couple of years and always loved all kinds of music. Um, and I think right after college, I was invited to sing as a soloist for a number of things. And it sparked the idea of maybe I can do this professionally because people are paying me to do it. Uh, and as I said, I got uh, great support from other musicians and artists in the area. So I put together a repertoire. I studied with some people. I did some some and it happened gradually. It really did happen gradually. I joined some professional associations and went around the country to hear other people. So for many years, Leonita, I, I would go to places to hear other people and absorb and to see what they were doing as I was putting together a professional repertoire and stepped out from there. So it did happen gradually over time. I like to say, when, when I say it, when I see it, it's like you made your avocation your vocation mm -hmm. because now that i think about it when i first met you you were in university administration oh I mean, yes i was you, you were raising money yes, oh, yes you were the big money raiser for university so yeah. and that's where i met you before i think i heard you sing yes i was dual career for and still to some extent um a dual career for 30 years, and it was a choice to be dual career. Fortunately, I worked in settings where people appreciated the arts and also um, work gave me the flexibility to be able to do some touring and things like that. Uh, also, I'll say, but for particularly when I worked at Duke for 20 years, many of my colleagues also had artist lives. Mm. They may have been um, painters or photographers or poets, but they did it at a very high professional level. So it was not unusual to say, okay, I got to leave early today because I'm going to fly to Atlanta because I have a gig tonight. That was the life. That was the life. Is it getting easier and your schedule being more controlled by <laughs> I don't you do that anymore. <laughs> At this phase, I'm happy right now to be really moving into a phase where my creative life is um, the primary focus of my time, uh, you know, along with family and, and, and other things. So not the nine to five um, juggling so much. A anymore. dream, a dream. So what's next for Lois Deloach? I guess you're touring, I don't know, with this album, Love Always. Are you already working on a new well, project? I am. <laughs> I bet, of course. You ask any uh, artist, any musician, there's always three, four, five projects in your back pocket. So, yes, this, in fact, was the first of a two-part series uh, that I want to do. Uh, we'll probably do some more recording near the end of this year. And, yes, I do have a few dates set up, and I'm working with some uh, promoters and uh, hoping to do some concerts and 
uh, whatever it brings. I want to be able to spread the music and get folks to, to hear it and hopefully embrace it. Well, congratulations. And of course, good luck. And there are many of us in the triangle who've enjoyed your singing and performing for decades. So thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to sing a line of for us before you leave? Um, I'll sing a line from a previous recording, uh, Southern Summer Rains. Okay. There was once a time when my spirit roamed free. So freely I have snapshots of a place I hold so dear to me. So near and dear to me, southern summer rain falling down on me. Thank you. I know I'm special now. <laughs> Lois DeLoach is a songwriter and jazz vocalist. Her latest album is Love Always. Thank you, Lois, for being here. Oh, thank you, Leonita, for being here and being who you are. We really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. This is Due South. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. Jeff Tiberi is my co-host. And I'm Leonida Inge.